The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Would you bow with me again in prayer this morning? And Father, as we've just sung your name, your name, what a gift that we know you by name, that you have declared yourself, that you have revealed yourself to us through your word and by your spirit that we can know you. And even as we study this morning in this passage, a greater revelation of yourself, your name, El Shaddai. Lord God, I pray that we would be changed by the truth of who you are, who you have revealed yourself to be, how you work, what you do, and who we are. Lord God, work through your word in great power this morning, through the weakness of human flesh, through the foolishness of preaching that the name of Christ would be exalted in this place. We pray and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. So as you think about names, the question comes to mind this morning, and that is, what are you particularly good at? When people hear the name Eric Stazak or Mary Wada, what do they think of? Do you have a specialty? Is there a certain skill or an ability? that sets you apart, something that causes others to turn to you when they need help in that area. Maybe you're great in the kitchen. So when it comes time to preparing certain dishes, people look to you for assistance or for advice. Maybe sewing is your specialty, so making alterations to clothing is something that friends would call you up for. Hey, can you help me out here? Welding, painting, teaching, music, hospitality, video editing. Think of all of these different gifts and skills that we have here in the church, and often we tend to identify others, and even be identified ourselves by these specialties, these things that we are good at. I can think of many times my family has reached out to some of you as individuals for help in areas where you specialize, medical needs, electrical help, counsel, and comfort, This morning, as we come to Genesis 17, I want you to consider this question. What is God's specialty? What is God's specialty? And I don't mean by this to try to put God in a box and say that he has one thing and one thing only that he's really good at or one area of expertise because we know that God is great at everything but to consider what it is that you think about God being able to do. What is it that when you think about God, you think this is what he is known for? In your heart and your mind, what is he capable of doing? 
And so this morning, as we look at Genesis chapter 17, I want to kind of trace this through. I want to follow this chapter through the course of four new names that are presented to us in Genesis 17. Four new names introduced to us in this chapter that communicate to us a great deal about God's specialty, about what he is so good at doing. Well, first, look with me in verse 1, and this is where we come to the first name. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. There's the first name that's new to us in Scripture, God Almighty. We have not yet come across that name of God, God Almighty. Now, Moses, in in presenting this to us, he wants to make sure that we have the chronology of the events and the appearances of God plain. And so we read in this first part of verse 1 that Abram is now 99 years old. When Seth preached last week in Genesis 16, that last verse, we left Abram as a spry 86-year-old man. He was 86 when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And now, chapter 17, verse 1, he's 99, that gap of 13 years. Now, Abram, when God came to him, He had already been living in Canaan for 10 years, according to Genesis chapter 16 and verse 3. When when he went in to, uh, when Sarah, excuse me, came to Abram, chapter 16 verse 3 says, after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So, already been living in Canaan for 10 years, and then we have in Genesis 17, 1, Abram is now 99 years old. So, we have 23 years that have passed with Abram living in Canaan, with the promise given to Abram that he would be the father of a multitude, like the stars in the sky, like the sand on the shores. Abram, you are going to be the father of a multitude. And 23 years have passed along. Abram, counting on his fingers the birth of all of his children... Who did he have? Well, Genesis chapter 16, in the beginning, zero, none. And then Ishmael, by his own effort, by his own sinful impatience, outside of God's design of marriage. And now Ishmael is 13 years old. And as we learned last week, the the tension that existed in the home In the family of Abram, Sarai continued barren. She continued childless. And this relationship between Sarai and Hagar likely didn't improve in these 13 years as Ishmael was growing. And so it's here, in this time, in this place, in this tense situation, where I'm sure for Abram... For Sarai especially, there was confusion that existed around God's promise and about God's fulfillment of that promise. And it's here and now that the Lord appears to Abram 
and gives him this further revelation of himself. He appeared to Abram, said to him, I am God Almighty. Now, that's one of the beautiful things about relationship with God is the more time we have with God, the more we know of God, the greater revelation we get of him. We get this revelation that comes through his word. As time goes on, more and more is made clear. We can, we can trace this through the book of Genesis so far. Even in Abram's own life, Genesis 12, the Lord calls him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and Abram builds an altar to the Lord and calls upon the name of the Lord. Then in Genesis 14, you remember the story of Melchizedek who is priest of God Most High, he blesses Abram, and he blesses him by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And this is like a new revelation to Abram, because in Genesis 14, after Melchizedek blesses Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, just a few verses later, When Abram is speaking about God, he speaks about God most high. He adopts this language. He has this greater understanding of who God is. And now in Genesis 17, the Lord appears to him and reveals himself as God Almighty. The Hebrew is El Shaddai. You might be familiar with that. You've maybe heard that before. This is how God revealed himself to Abram, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Exodus chapter 6 and verse 3, God says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. God Almighty. When you think about God, do you think about God Almighty? It speaks of his omnipotence. That's a fun word, one that you should teach all of your young children. Such sweet memories when our kids were so little, sitting around our our table and just trying to teach them omnipotence. Get them to say that word, but to teach them what it means. God's power is limitless. There's no end to it. Nothing is beyond his reach. Nothing is outside of his control. Consider that. God Almighty. Now, Abram was at a point where he was living in this great tension, in this great confusion, but God was still in control. Abram was seeing these years slip by, 23 years, and the promise still unfulfilled. But God was yet to exercise his power. And here, in this trial, in this tension, God appears to him as God Almighty. It's interesting to note that 31 times in the book of Job, God is revealed as God Almighty. God Almighty. In the midst of tension, of intense trial for Job, what revelation of God did Job most need? That God is God Almighty. When, when all that Job had seemed to be slipping away or was taken from him, everything was outside of Job's control. But he has this understanding and this revelation that God is God Almighty. Things might be outside of my control. Yes, I may be in anguish and agony in great trial, But God is God Almighty. And church, I know that you're familiar with trial. I know that you're familiar with anguish. 
It seems like it's just part and parcel with the human experience, isn't it? We go through life and we go through difficulty. And in that, I want to encourage you, meditate on the might of God. A might that is almighty. He is God almighty. Unstoppable. Immeasurable. A God that always does what is right with his power and who fights for you. This is how the psalmist understood it in Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. I am God Almighty. Have you considered, have you factored into your trial, into your difficulty, the might of God working on your behalf for your good and for his glory? Remember the question now from earlier. What is God's specialty? Now, almighty is not his specialty, but almighty is a significant contributor to it, that he can do all things, that he is all-powerful. And so he appears to Abram, and he calls Abram, and he gives this charge to Abram, in verse 1, and says, walk before me and be blameless. What an invitation. I want you to see that. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, there's the reality that everything we do, conscious of it or not, whether we're thinking of it or not, everything that we do is in the sight of God that there's no hiding from him. And so Abram, just living life, really would have been living life before God. God would have seen all that Abram was doing, and God would have known everything that Abram was thinking even. But God gives this invitation to Abram. Abram, walk before me. That is, live your life in such a way that you are mindful of my watching over you all the time. Don't go through times where you think it's secret, it's hidden, or I'm not paying attention to you. Abram, I'm inviting you into this relationship where we are present with each other. Walk before me and be blameless. This is living life quorum Deo, that is in the face of God. All that you do and think and say is done before the almighty God. And this is an invitation that God gives to us. As I said, yes, it's the reality that whether we acknowledge it or not, we are living life before God. But it's different when we approach life that way, knowing that God has invited us into this relationship with him, that we can live our life before him and to be blameless, to live in such a way that brings pleasure and honor to him. And God Almighty continues with Abram in verse two, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Now, in this first paragraph, as we look at verses 1 through 8, Nathan read it for us this morning. We're not going to reread this entire paragraph, but I want you to take note of how many times we see God saying he would perform. He would do something. I will make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. 
And then in verse 5, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will establish my covenant over and over again. I will give to you, to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings. I will, I will. God is saying, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. And look at all that I will do. I will just saturates this first paragraph. It's not what Abram can accomplish, but it is what God Almighty is going to accomplish, that he is going to multiply Abram greatly. Now, this multiplication of Abram that brings us to the second new name in our chapter this morning Look with me, starting in verse 3. Abram fell on his face. That's the right response when God gives you a greater revelation of himself. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. From Abram to Abraham. Now, Abram, the name means exalted father. Exalted father. And it seems that that name, exalted father, was really pointing back to his lineage, pointing back to his ancestry, pointing back to his roots and his place of prominence in society. This is who Abram was. This is where Abram came from, a prominent figure, an exalted father. But God says, your name from now on is going to be Abraham. That means father of a multitude. That is who you were, Abram. But now, Abraham, that name is pointing forward to what I am going to do in you and through you, Abraham. Father of a multitude. Now, Donald Gray Barnhouse, he he writes about this name of Abram. And I think it it helps summarize, maybe helps us understand what was wrapped up in Abram's name. And he writes saying that Abram was an Oriental, strategically located athwart the roads of the camel caravans that carried the commerce of the ancient world between Egypt and the north and east. He owned the wells, and his flocks and herds were great. The scripture says that Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. When the caravans of the rich merchants came into the land, either from the north or from the south, they stopped at Abram's wells. The servants of Abram took good care of the needs of the camels and the servants of the traders. Food was sold to the travelers. And in the evening time, the merchants would have come to Abram's tent to pay their respects. The questions would have followed a set pattern. How old are you? Who are you? How long have you been here? When the trader had introduced himself, Abram was forced to name himself Abram, father of many. It must have happened a hundred times, a thousand times, and each time more galling than the time before. Oh, father of many, congratulations, and how many sons do you have? And the answer was so humiliating to Abram, none. And many a time there must have been the half-concealed snort of humor at the incongruity of the name and the fact that there were no children to back up such a name. Abram must have steeled himself for the question and the reply and have hated the situation with great bitterness. This is what Abram had lived with. This was his name. 
This is his experience. Abram, exalted father. How many children? Zero. Nil. Zilch. None. And God presses this even farther and says, you will no longer be known as Abram. You'll be known as Abraham, the father of a multitude. And so Abraham receives a new name, which is looking forward to the impossible task that God will perform. It's founded upon his promise. God promises that Abraham will be exceedingly fruitful. He will become nations. And he says that kings will even come from him. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 4. The Apostle Paul helps us to even understand what is taking place here in this naming of Abraham and the promise given to him in Romans chapter 4. I'll start reading in verse 17. It says, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's what God was doing giving life to the dead. Abram, we read, was as good as dead. He was so old. And the womb of his wife, Sarah, was dead. And God calls into existence things that do not even exist. Verse 18, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's faith, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is something impossible. Abram, 99 years old, and you're going to be the father of a multitude. There will be nations that come from you. You will be exceedingly fruitful, and kings will come from you. And Abraham believed. Abraham believed God's promise. Because why? Because he is God Almighty. Nothing is beyond his ability. Nothing is beyond his ability to perform, to accomplish what he has promised. And so God makes this next step in the covenant that he has made with Abraham, the promise made back in Genesis 12, this is, is now further filled out, this unilateral covenant. I want you to understand that, that when God establishes his covenant with Abraham, it's one-sided. God draws up the terms. He came up with the terms. It is God who is going to accomplish this. But Abram here, and for the first time in this covenant made with Abraham, Abraham has a part to play. Remember when Nathan preached in the cutting of the covenant, Abraham's unconscious over on the side in a trance and God performs. Now here, Abraham is called to circumcision. Circumcision. Now, it's interesting that finally, finally, Abraham is given something to do in this covenant relationship with God. And what is it? 
It's actually a reduction. It's a cutting away. This isn't, Abraham, I'm going to make you even greater. I'm going to make you stronger. No, it's a cutting away of himself. It's a reduction. It's directly related to Abram's, Abraham's procreation. It's a constant reminder that God had promised And it would need to be God Almighty who would accomplish it. So when Abraham is finally called in to do something, when there are terms to this covenant, when there is a condition laid out, it's actually a reduction, a cutting away of the flesh. It would need to be God Almighty that would ultimately accomplish this promise Well, this brings us to this third new name, and that new name is given to Sarai. And we come to this in verse 15. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Now, the name change for Sarai. Sarai means princess. Sarah means princess. That's what I could find as I researched it. Princess. And we think, that doesn't seem like a great change. Just change a letter, in our English at least. Same meaning. But the seemingly slight change, just like with Abram to Abraham has great significance, where Abram, exalted father, was pointing back to who he was and to his standing in society, so also Sarai pointing back to who she was, her standing in society. But Sarah is pointing forward to who she would become. Sarah, meaning princess, was pointing forward to the fact that as a princess, she would be the mother of kings. Do you see that? That's what God promised in verse 16. I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. When it's paired with the promise of God, This name, Sarah, takes on huge significance. Sarah is 90 years old. 90 years old. And she is just as much a part of this promise as Abraham is. Do you notice, do you see how closely the promise concerning her parallels the promise that's made to Abraham? There's the promise of blessing, becoming nations, kings of peoples coming from her in verse 16. This is very similar to verse 6. I will make you fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. That's what was spoken to Abraham. Now, Abraham, in in hearing this this blessing and this promise that would be fulfilled through Sarah. Verse 17, he falls on his face, and this time he laughs. And he said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. 
Abram wants to resort back to his own doing. He wants to go back to the work of his flesh outside of God's design. He wants to resort back to Ishmael. Look, he's 13. I, I, I've, I've been grooming him. I've been preparing him. I'm ready for this promise to be accomplished through him, God. And the Lord says, no. Remember, Abraham, I am God Almighty. I will do the impossible. It will be through Sarah as I have promised. But wouldn't it just be easier to have Ishmael be the one that the promise is fulfilled through? God's not looking for the path of least resistance. This is God Almighty. He's promised a son through Sarah. And the son, we're told his name will be Isaac. That's the fourth new name that we come to in this chapter this morning. Isaac. God says, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. That means laughter. Or if you look in the footnote of your Bible, maybe it says, he laughs. He laughs. Abraham's laughter at the promise of God. This is what I'm going to do, Abraham. And Abraham falls on his face and laughs. I love it. He's not rebuked. He's not reprimanded by God for laughing. Laughs can take on different tones and attitudes, right? In the next chapter, Sarah, she laughs when she hears about this, and she's corrected for it. But here, Abraham is not. I, I picture this as like jolly old Abraham hearing this news and just having a good chuckle <laughs> I'm going to be a father at 100 years old and Sarah at 90. <laughs> that's great. Oh, that's wonderful, God. He falls on his face and he laughs and God says, your son's name will be laughter. You see, it's not disbelief. That Abraham has. Abraham believes God. That, that's what we've seen consistently as we go to, to the book of Romans and we read about Abraham. He believes God and it's counted to him for righteousness. He's believing God. He's, he's struggling at times, yes, to believe God. He's struggling with, with the timing of it. He's struggling to be patient for God to perform what he said he would do. But overall and throughout, Abraham believes. God said he would do this, and I know that he will perform it. And God makes this promise that it is through Isaac, verse 21, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. The covenant will be established with Isaac. The promise will be carried forward through him. And this shows that, that God isn't just looking for the easiest way or what is most convenient, but that God has a course that is charted out. God has a plan that he is going to accomplish. He has made promises concerning this plan. And by his mighty strength, he is going to accomplish those promises now, Abraham is very obedient in this chapter. He follows through with the circumcision. Both he as a 99-year-old man, his 13-year-old son Isaac, all of those born in his house, all of the servants in his home, all of the men at this point are circumcised. And from this day forward, that would be what would mark the people of God. Circumcision. 
God Almighty, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac. This is all pointing us to the specialty of God. Now, all of these were things impossible. Abraham being the father of a multitude. Sarah being the the mother of kings. Isaac being born from a mother who is 90 years old. It's all impossible. But the specialty of God is even more specific than that. You see, God specializes in impossible redemption. And that's where this is all pointing forward to. It's about relationship with him. I want you to look back to Genesis 17 and verse 8. As God is establishing this covenant with Abraham, he says, I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And this last phrase, this is what we need to grab onto, and I will be their God. I will be their God. That is what God is aiming for. That is the course that he has charted out. That is the plan that God has. I will be their God. That's covenant language. That is the language of redemption. That is the language of relationship. One more place I want you to turn this morning, and that's to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah 32. And while you're turning to Jeremiah 32, I want to read from Jeremiah chapter 9. In Jeremiah chapter 9, we read there, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. God gives this covenant and these terms to Abraham And he says, here is the mark, here is the symbol of this covenant relationship that we have as the rainbow was the sign of the covenant with Noah. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant with Abraham. But God says it's not just about an outward sign. It's not just a mark in the flesh. You can be circumcised in the flesh, but what I really want is a circumcised heart. So in Jeremiah chapter 32, we read about the covenant with God and this new covenant. In Jeremiah 32, starting in verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And here it is and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's what God had spoken to Abraham as part of the covenant. Yeah, you'll have the land, the place of your sojournings for an eternal possession, and I will be their God. That's what God has been aiming at all along. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God wants circumcised hearts. In Jeremiah 32, God promises new hearts. He says, this is the work 
that I will do. Jeremiah 32. I was, I think I said the wrong chapter before. I said 32 and I was reading from 31. So to avoid that confusion. And now we're really in Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32. Verse 36. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. Here it is again, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. God is concerned with our hearts, and it should be from our hearts that proceeds our conduct. Even as we looked at a few weeks ago that Abraham was circumcised in heart before he was ever circumcised in his flesh, he had already believed God And had it counted to him as righteous. And then the covenant of circumcision came along. Do you see this church that God wants your heart? And when you think about what is God's specialty. God is able to do the impossible. God is able to redeem lost sinners. He has done so in my life. He has done so in your life. He has turned us around. He has given us new hearts. He has put his spirit within us. He is able to do the impossible. He is God Almighty, and he does the impossible and brings us into relationship with him. I will be their God. That's the promise that we have from God, that he will be our God Almighty that we can have relationship with him, that we can walk with him, that we can experience him, that we can turn to him each day at every crossroads, in every trial, when when we're lacking patience, when we want to hold on to the promise of God and we just don't see that it's happening or how it can happen. God says, I will be your God. I am God Almighty. Relationship with me. Walk with me. And I will reveal myself as God Almighty. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your marvelous work. We thank you for the impossible work that you have performed, that you have turned us who were in rebellion against you, that you have redeemed us even when we were your enemies, even when we were opposed to you, that you reconciled us to yourself by the death of your son. We thank you for this new covenant that we exist in, instituted by Jesus, accomplished by him, 
And through Jesus, we have an even greater revelation of God Almighty, conquering over sin and Satan and death. And we wait for that day when our Lord Jesus comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords. Even as this promise was given to Abraham and to Sarah that kings would come from them. And that was true. King David, a thousand years later, came from Abraham and Sarah. But then even a thousand years after that, the one true and eternal king, Jesus, came in that line and lineage. Father, thank you for Jesus, for the work that you have done in us and for us through him. Thank you that we have forgiveness of sins through his blood. Thank you that we have relationship with you by his sacrifice. That we can come even boldly to the throne of grace and find help in our time of need. Father, we look to you. We are so grateful for you and for what you have revealed to us of yourself as our God and of your desire for continued relationship with us. And so in that, we ask that you would continue to draw us closer and closer to you, that we would live circumcised lives from hearts that are given to you. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.